we can have the conversation about, can you exercise too much? We've talked about it a little bit in the past. Um, it's a question that is academically debated. I think from a practical standpoint though, the answer is just yes. Right. Um, now to what end, like, does it harm your heart? Does it, you know, there's all kinds of ways to look at that question, but if we, if we take a frank look at, you know, can someone who has a job, family, um, other responsibilities, can they exercise so much that it becomes detrimental to their health in, in either direct or indirect ways? Absolutely so. Hi, everyone. This is The Podium, and I'm Dr. Kevin Sprouse. Our podcast originated as a resource for my practice where I work with professional athletes and high-performing individuals from around the world. Today, it has become a forum for an even greater audience, and we welcome everyone as we discuss the principles of performance and then disseminate pertinent, actionable info with our patients in mind. One thing to note before we begin, the content of this podcast is not meant as medical advice. This is for general informational purposes only. Welcome to the podium. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Podium. I am Patrick Morris and I'm here today with Dr. Kevin Sprouse. Good morning, Patrick. We're starting in on our Foundations um, series of episodes, three episodes. We kind of teased it. It's a little more than a tease last time. Laid the groundwork, I guess. And today we're going to get into the first of those topics. Yes. Today we're going to be talking about training and exercise as its foundation as far as kind of overall health and performance. And I want to I want to say that I add training and exercise on purpose as I kind of view those or as we kind of look at those as, as two different things, training with a real goal towards performance or maybe an outcome to it, whereas exercise kind of fits in with a more lifespan kind of healthy goal overall. Yeah. And they're not mutually exclusive. I think a lot of people uh, talk about those as well, even back up, talk about uh, um, health and performance as kind of like you have to sac sacrifice one for the other. And sometimes in the short term, that may be true. But I think with a longer view, they actually often go run fairly parallel. Um, you, you can't, in my opinion, you can't perform at your best if you're not healthy. And it's very rare that you can maintain, uh, maintain health if you don't have some goal toward performance. Um, and performance can be really, really, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about how we define these things. It can be really defined differently by different people. I mean, it's based on your goals, right? But if, if you're not moving forward, if you're not progressing with what you're doing, then you're not really providing a lot of stimulus. And so the exercise starts to call, starts to fall kind of flat. So for me, they, they kind of run parallel, although they will diverge at times. And it's, I think it's really good to keep them in separate buckets like you were talking about and, uh, and really pay attention to when the focus is on one versus the other. Yeah. I, I kind of pointed it out because I think a lot of times athletes who are out training and are viewing their training plan and they're seeing, we'll talk about kind of exercise hours per week. And, and we use that a lot with, with athletes. It's like, oh, I'm trying to hit 10 hours. I'm trying to hit 15 hours, whatever it might be. And they don't realize that they're exercising during all of that time. And compared to the rest of the general population, it's a massive double, triple, whatever amount of the actual overall volume of activity. And I think there needs to be more respect for that of like, you know, recreational athletes out there training. And we'll bring in kind of at the end of this, the important part of recovery and knowing that, Hey, like I'm doing 10, 12, 15 hours a week. I need to make sure that I'm also recovering because I'm setting the, you know, the 150 minutes, the, the kind oh. of ACSM standard I'm doing five, six times that every yeah. week. Yeah. Blowing it away. And that, that standard that you mentioned, we can, we can kind of talk about here real quickly just to pay it lip service more or less. Um, you know, the American college of sports medicine for years has had as their minimum recommended dose of activity, 150 minutes or of exercise and exercise has been defined different ways throughout the years as they've, have they've pushed this, um, Initially, it had to be bouts that were, I can't remember, 20 minutes or 30 minutes uh, to kind of count toward that. And now they recognize that even a five-minute bout can count toward it. But you got to get your heart rate up. Um, the point being, 150 minutes of exercise in a week, a lot of people look at that. If, if you're sedentary, you look at that and you think, God, that's, 
that's a lot of time, but, um, it's really not that much. I mean, two and a half hours across seven days. And so when we talk about, uh, recreational athletes who are training, like you said, two times that three times, five times that, um, then we very quickly see that, uh, there's, there's talking about that 150 minutes only catches a small part of what we're t- looking to do. Yeah. I love the, um, so I wear a, a wearable, like my Garmin watch, and it gives you kind of your 300 minute per week goal based on that. Mm. And I love being on a Tuesday ride and it rolls over and like gives you a little champagne bottle and celebrates hitting your activity goal for the week. Yeah. Cause I don't have mindset to, to auto adjust to the overall volume, but it's, it's, it's valuable to kind of know that and, and take that when we look at kind of exercise hours per week. Um, and just kind of looking at today's discussion, we'll kind of touch on some strength training, some aerobic. And I really like to look at the overall activity, like exercise and training, as far as kind of looking at your frequency, your intensity, your time and your type. So I'll kind of keep coming back to those various domains as we discuss each different modality. Yeah. That's the fit. Uh, I can't remember the name, but there's a VP at the end of some of them, but I kind of forgot what the VP was. So frequency, oh, intensity, to learn time. That. Yeah. Yeah. The time and type I, I really focus on. Yeah. It's a great way to think about it. Cause that, that's what builds, that's what com- comprises training load. Um, yeah. And so we also mentioned in the last, uh, kind of intro episode that we are going over these, these topics of exercise, recovery, sleep, nutrition, um, because they're, what we see is the foundations of health and performance. And with that, we've created a scoring system for our patients. And so they can get a bit of a report card and there's certain things that we look at that we assess in them annually and that we'll score, um, and give them, you know, X number of points out of what's 30 in this case. And so, uh, their, their full annual report card will come to a hundred points, but exercise contributes 30 points toward that. That's really immaterial for anyone listening. That's not a patient. The point is what we're going to go through in this episode and the ones to come are the, uh, the, the topics or the scoring points that allow you to build those within the program because we think it's important, right? Because we think it is the very foundation of health and performance. We're not going to get into even the weighting of the points because again, it's arbitrary. It's really, uh, you know, I think it's helpful to direct someone where they should be looking, but it's not the be all end all. So we'll talk about how you get the points, where you get the points. We're not going to get into what the points are. Um, unless you're one of the patients and you know, we'll go through that with you. Uh, but you'll hear us kind of tick over some things like exercise hours per week that are those things where points can be gained or lost. Yeah. And it's, I think looking at, you know, the points, whatever you want to score it as, or look at it, it's also just kind of an approach to say, okay, like I want to try to make sure that I'm, I'm checking all of the boxes, looking at kind of how I'm approaching health or, or my performance. So making sure you're getting, a little bit of each and you're not just getting really focused on one thing, which we see a lot of times with endurance athletes. Mm-hmm. It's just all I do is, is run five times a week and that's it. Having a spread of thing, different activities, strength training, variation in your aerobic training, which we'll get into is all really important. It is. And again, we're looking at both training and exercise, you know, performance and health. And so we need to take a wider lens and even look at things like, you know, how many days off a week do you take? So, our exercise scoring isn't just how much exercise can you do? It's really a balance of, do you do enough? Do you do the right types? Do you recover appropriately? Are you moving throughout the day? Um, so it's, it's a little more wide ranging than that, but we'll, we'll get into it kind of point by point here in a minute after, yeah. after my coffee, coffee is kicked in. Oh yeah. What kind of coffee are you drinking there? Yeah. Funny. You should ask. Um, no, seriously. So, I, I think a lot of people know that we're kind of into coffee and that we're often drinking coffee before, during, and or after these episodes and a general date at work here at Podium. And we've got a fantastic coffee sponsor for the for this uh, series that we're doing. Um, Perk Coffee Roasters, that's P-E-R-C, has amazing beans. And I'm not just saying that. Like, it's it's absolutely the case that when we have a sponsor on the show, it's because we really like them. Um, and this is one where we got the chance to try their beans. Um, 
one of their employees who I won't call out here, but is a cyclist and got in touch with us and said, Hey, you should try this stuff. I was kind enough to send us stuff and send us some beans and they're really good. And so today what I'm drinking, maybe each one of these episodes, I'll do a different coffee drink on our, our rocket espresso machine beforehand. But today I'm doing my standard, which is a, uh, an oat milk flat white more or less. Um, but the coffee in it is the Papua New Guinea. Uh, it's a new roast they're doing. I, th- I don't know if they call it seasonal, but they kind of run through some that they have limited, limited runs of. Uh, and this was one that was recommended to us and it's really good. I like it. Yeah. I love, um, kind of the way that you can use the subscription service or kind of just order off their website and get a diversity of beans. Uh, something that, that, that Kevin and I do is when we travel anywhere, we'll bring back a bag of beans from whatever the roaster might be and all these different places. And it's nice to have a, a company like perk that lets you kind of pick and choose different, different beans, different style roasts. And they give you a lot of background on who the, the farmer is like yeah. how they roasted it. And they even help you with kind of what to set your grinder to when you're going to go make an espresso with it, which really helps because you usually waste one or two shots when you're, when you're using kind of the nicer beans. Yeah, it's true. Um, and like the farmer stories are interesting. If you're a coffee nerd, kind of in the same way, if you're into wine, you want to know who the producer was, who the, uh, you know, who, who made the wine. Uh, but beyond that, what I found really interesting is like you said, is the education on how to brew it. Um, and, and we can, we could make this whole podcast about coffee as you guys could see. Uh, this is probably one of the longer ads we've ever had, but it's for real. Um, so anyway, I won't go into it, but they, they give a lot of good education on the beans that you get a lot of good options. Um, and like I've said, if you send in a question for the podcast in the next couple episodes, uh, around exercise, sleep, uh, nutrition, and we go over it in the episode, we'll send you a couple bags of beans. We'll send you some, uh, podium swag. Um, we'll get you taken care of. So send that stuff in and uh, let us know what, what questions you have. Yeah. We might even send you a bag of uh, decaf if you send questions into the sleep episode so that we can kind of practice what yeah. we preach. Yeah. They've got a good decaf. So moving away from caffeination, All right, but back to exercise. Now we'll, that we're caffeinated, we'll come back to the, we'll start with exercise hours a week. Cause that's just kind of how our, our like scoring starts off. So I'll ask you how many hours a week should I exercise? I think, for all these, it's going to be individual. It depends. And that's why the scoring system is helpful, but not the be all end all. Right. So if you're a pro athlete and you're, you know, if you're a tour de France cyclist and you're, you're training 25, 30 hours a week, you're probably right on target building up for the race. But anybody else who's got, you know, another full-time job, that's probably detrimental. And we can have the conversation about, can you exercise too much? We've talked about it a little bit in the past. Um, it's a question that is academically debated. I think from a practical standpoint, though, the answer is just yes, right? Um, now, to what end? Like, does it harm your heart? Does it, you know, there's all kinds of ways to look at that question. But if we if we take a frank look at, you know, can someone who has a job, family, um, other responsibilities, can they exercise so much that it becomes detrimental to their health in, in either direct or indirect ways? Absolutely. So that is not the problem most people have. So our scoring system really gives you points as you add hours to your week, right? We want people exercising, um, at the far end, if you start to go over, uh, a certain number of hours per week, you may be docked a couple points, not a lot. I mean, you, you could do 40 hours a week and you're only going to be docked a couple points. And the, and the reason for that is again, this system is meant to draw your attention to what you're doing. And if that's an extreme behavior, we just want to look there and make sure that that's not something you're doing in a, in a maladaptive fashion. So to go back and say, how many hours per week should you exercise to me, kind of a sweet spot for most recreational athletes who are looking to be healthy is probably kind of, it's going to be that eight to 10, right? If you've got an event coming up uh, and you're really targeting that event and you have the time to put into it and that ramps up to, you know, 12, 15, 18 for a recreational athlete, that's probably the max that they're going to be able to fit in healthfully. Um, And most of them are going to want to dial back once that, that goal has been met, that race has happened. 
and they probably are going to find themselves in the 10 to 12 hour range. But that's, I'm not saying that's the perfect number. That's kind of through years of experience and watching folks who are recreational in what they do, that tends to be a real sweet spot where they can perform, stay healthy, still uh, allocate time to job, family, um, you know, other recreational pursuits, which I think is really important. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a nice place to land. Yeah. I think in the, in the general population, a lot of times there's a search or especially in kind of like the, the biohacking community, there's a search for what the minimum effective dose would be. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times with people who enjoy training, especially multi-sport athletes, they kind of reach for what the maximum effective dose might be. And I find that, and the same, same as kind of what you were saying is that tends to go beyond what's really effective yeah. because they start to sacrifice sleep. They start to sacrifice other parts of their life that are really important to making those training adaptations. So, I mean, I personally find that that eight to 10 hour range really hits a sweet spot for me. And then taking advantage of gaps in your year or time, like I had a month and a half or so off of school. So I had six mm -hmm. weeks. So I added that, you know, six to eight hours that goes to school. I upped my training to kind of that 10 to 14 hours for those few weeks built some fitness, kind of like a little mini training camp. And now I'm kind of backing that back down. So knowing that it, it ebbs and flows, there's no perfect thing all of the time. You don't need to constantly be hitting 10 hour weeks. You don't need to be constantly hitting 15 hour weeks, sneaking things in here and there, taking downtime, looking at the average across the year is really kind of what helps to use for our scoring. And then also I think will help people conceptualize, okay, averagely speaking, like I'm doing five rides a week and like three strength training, whatever it might be. And that really helps you kind of conceptualize it. Yeah. And we're talking about, again, that average number per week, right? So there will be weeks that are over that. There'll be weeks that are under in, in a well-formulated exercise plan or training plan, there's progression. Um, and there's progression on a large scale and on a small scale. And so across say four weeks, you may have a week that has six hours, a week that has eight, a week with 10, a week with 12, and then you're back down to six and you get that rest week. And so if you average that out, you're around 10. It doesn't mean that, you know, every week needs to be eight hours. I would also say you don't want every week to be the same. The whole idea is that you're applying a stimulus that is somewhat novel in terms of the load or the, or the modality uh, so that you're always stressing the body a bit. If, if you always run five miles on the same course at the same time of day in, you know, 39 minutes and 30 seconds, um, then you're really not getting any fitter and you're arguably just adapting to one very, very specific thing. Like you may be really good on that course, but you try to run it backwards and you fall apart. Uh, so again, this, this is honing in on a number that in and of itself isn't necessarily meaningful, but should give you some guidance as to whether the inputs that get you to that number are beneficial and where you want to be. Yeah. And that's, that's somewhere where I think looking at things from a training perspective versus an exercise perspective really starts to, to hit home. Cause I'm, I'm never going to tell anybody to not do the group class that they love or whatever it might be. But you see a lot of people in commercial gyms and just kind of your, your general exercisers that are feeling really stagnant with what they're doing. You know, they do the same three day program. They do a body pump class two days a week, and they're not really making progress either way. They're still doing a lot of health promoting behaviors, but maybe they're kind of like, man, I'm not, nothing's really changing. It's because the the training's not really changing at yeah. all. So that's, I have kind of a note at the end to talk about like learning new skills, trying new things and having variation in your training. And I think that's really important and kind of underrepresented in the, the general like exercise approach, but for training, following a periodized structure, knowing that you have a preseason build, an anaerobic block, like a, a VO2 block, whatever it might be, really helps to kind of put that into a structure that helps you keep progressing. Yeah. I totally agree. And if, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, I'm not training for anything and I don't plan to, that's absolutely fine. A lot of the same tenets hold true. Um, in, in our little rubric here, uh, you get full points for exercise hours per week, starting at five hours per week. We already said the American College of Sports Medicine recommends a kind of a bare minimum of 150 minutes or two and a half hours. Um, so, I like to see patients double that as a, as a minimum. 
not because there's anything magical to that, but then we, we know you're getting, you know, enough. Um, and that's five hours. Rarely is that allocated as like a four hour run on Saturday and two 30 minute classes during the week. Right. Um, typically if somebody's doing five hours a week, they're probably doing close to five, one hour days. Um, and I like the consistency with that. Right. I, I, I don't love someone just doing, you know, two or three days a week where they're exercising because that's a lot of days that are sedentary. Uh, it doesn't mean that that's bad, but all things being equal, I'd rather people be a bit more consistent, uh, than worrying about almost anything else. Consistency and not consistency with what they're doing. Like we just talked about being, being inconsistent with that and kind of changing things up and, 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 uh, really stressing the body is good, but consistency with, um, with, you know, time per week of activity or however you want to lay it out there, but uh, just making sure that you have regular sessions that aren't too spaced, uh, across the calendar. Yeah. Frequency can be really helpful when you look at kind of shooting for an accumulated goal. And that's something that I think, especially cyclists and, and, and runners start to, to miss out on is we think, Oh, I didn't hit eight hours on the bike this week but there were three hours of strength training. There were four hours of playing a round of golf. There was two hours of pickleball. There was, I know we've, we've got one patient that does like 18 different activities in a week. And I was yeah. like, you're doing 30 hours of, yeah. of exercise each week. Like it, it accumulates and that can really help kind of break the barrier of entry. If you're somebody who hears 150 and you're like, that's intimidating. Yeah. You can do 20 minutes a day and hit that goal. And it can be something as simple as that, especially if you're looking at adding something new, like strength training to your routine. Like you just do little bouts here and there, like the exercise snack. And that still counts. Towards, oh, yeah. Like we talked about when we let off, like your little, your five minutes, like choosing to, to just be more active generally can really play a role in that. It does. And, and what we're going for with the, the duration part of it, the the hours per week is really having enough volume that you improve fitness, right? Um, and that's kind of where our next one comes in. You know, we look at VO2 max on patients. And this is something that's probably gained a bit more steam in the last year or two, but it's it's been around a while. I mean, this this when I was in undergrad, we were testing this and looking at the same studies on uh, you know, longevity in addition to, uh, performance and, and how VO2 max plays a role. VO2 max is basically a measure of the amount of oxygen you're able to take into the body and then utilizes fuel at a muscular level, uh, or a cellular level. And so it, it's, uh, so oxygen is fuel, right? Um, and so we measure it in milliliters of oxygen and that's mill you often see somebody wearing a mask to do this. So the, the gas is being captured. It's called gas exchange. Um, and so it's milliliters of oxygen that's breathed in and burned at a cellular level per kilogram of body weight per minute. So it's measuring the size of the engine, right? Um, it is your aerobic, uh, capacity is often how it's termed. Um, and when we look at this, that milliliters per kilogram of body weight per minute, normalizes it between individuals. And you can look at it as just straight milliliters of oxygen. There's lots of ways to do it, but mLs per kg per minute normalizes it so that, you know, you can basically compare not just with your friends, but across a population. And that's really useful in studies. And we can see that as people's VO2 max increases, obviously they're getting fitter, but their, uh, their lifespan increases pretty dramatically. I mean, almost, it might even be the most impactful thing you can do for lifespan. Um, full stop. Like, I'm trying to think of anything else that, you know, th there's some nutritional things. Uh, smoking, I guess is one that takes a really shortens lifespan, but increasing your VO2 max, uh, has massive impact on your longevity. And it has the most impact when you go from basically a couch potato at the lowest end, the lowest, um, uh, so the lowest 25th, 25th percentile and below, right? So lowest quartile, uh, to the next one up. So if you move from 10th percentile to 30th percentile, your improvement in lifespan has gone up remarkably. It's actually a, a 
50%. Statistically, this gets a little, uh, we won't get into the weeds, but you, you, you drop your all cause mortality by about 50%. doesn't mean you're going to live 50% longer, but you know, for a given person, they're, all cause risk of death at that age is 50% lower. No, I think that that point's really important because a lot of us hear VO two max and we immediately think of the athletes that have an 80 or a 90 or a 70 and think, Oh, I, you know, maybe I, I did a stress test and I was in the thirties or something like that or, or, or whatever, but you can see that having that initial step out of kind of that lower end, like you were just saying, has a dramatic effect on that. And then there's also a huge role of maintaining that VO two max with age as you train, because it yeah. starts to decline at age 40, correct? By like, like tested one per year, like according to the papers, but yeah, and not that, in, in practice. True. True. So that's, that's what we were always taught. Or at least what I was taught is that, um, actually I think it was sometime around 30, it starts declining, but that's kind of been shown not to be true. It, it, it is the case. It will inevitably decline. Your, your VO2 max will inevitably decline across your lifespan. Um, it does not inevitably take a hit because you turn a certain age, right? So you can imagine a case where somebody is a professional athlete in their 30s, and then they continue to train the same way, compete recreationally. And at 45, they've kind of maintained their VO2 max. They may not have the same top end speed. They may... Other metrics of performance will have lagged, but they can hold on to that for a while. You can also imagine a scenario where somebody turns 40 and they decide they have to get in shape, right? And their VO2 max is just tanked. They come in and it's like 32 um, and they decide they're going to get in shape and they train a while and they get it up to 42, 45, which, you know, shouldn't really be the case if it's just inevitably going to decline from 40 and you're, and you're screwed. So it's not nearly that cut and dry, but if you look at someone's lifespan or across their lifespan, um, and say they maintain roughly the same activity level, it will decline you from your forties to fifties to sixties to seventies. And so there's an argument that is probably a decent one that you want to have your VO two max relatively high at that point that that decline sets in so that you're declining from a higher spot. Um, and I think that's true. It doesn't take into account as much the fact that you're presumably going to stay active in your fifth, sixth, seventh decade um, and really slow that decline, uh, the, the slope of that decline. Uh, but it is better to be coming into those that second half of life at a higher fitness level. Um, because it's easier to hold on to it longer. And so in our scoring, uh, in our, in our scoring table here, the maximum points you get for VO two max is being in that top 97 and a half percentile. So the, you know, the, the top of the top, and that is actually reachable. I mean, you hear that and you think, ah, oh, well that's professional endurance athletes. Um, it does include them but they're kind of the 99.99. Like this is looking across the population. And so being able to hit say 95th percentile and higher is entirely doable for a lot of people. It's going to be hard. But then if we back it down a little bit and say, well, what about just hitting kind of 80th percentile and higher? That's absolutely doable for probably the vast majority of people coming into this scenario. And so looking to get in that at least top quartile is I think a, a really reasonable measure, a reasonable goal here toward VO two max. Yeah. And looking at those, those crazy outliers of like the 99.9 percenters, that's where you've always heard, you know, Oh, it's, it's heavily genetically predetermined. The chance to get to an 80 or a 90, I, I would probably say yes, yeah. is going to be very dependent on your genetics, but your ability to train it and get into those higher percentiles, which is really usually just like in the fifties or so yeah, exactly. like from a raw number is, is totally doable for people who have just normal genes like me. Yeah, you're exactly right. So, uh, it, it, when you're talking about those numbers, the 80 to 90 measurement is 80 to 90 mLs per kg per minute. And that is a, you know, that's a tour de France rider an Olympic cross country skier. Um, you know, the, the highest recorded measure, if I'm not mistaken was, uh, 
a Norwegian uh, cross-country skier that I think was 98, um, 97 or 98. The highest that I've seen uh, in, in testing athletes or with athletes that I've worked with, um, I've seen a 93 and a 94. So uh, huge numbers. And those are off the chart high. I mean, from a percentile, you might as well just round up to 100. Like that's, you know, you're not going to see that. So what the rest of us are looking at is getting in that, you know, 80, 90th percentile. <clears throat> and for those, it it's, you know, high 50s, 60s, depending on your age, because these are, we have uh, uh, normative data that's been published where you can look at your gender and age, usually by decade or five years and see where you fall. And so with that, like for me, my, well, I actually don't know what mine is at the moment. Um, but having, I know where it was, I know where it dropped to, uh, when I was uh, not able to train as much. And then now that I'm back to training, or at least to your point, exercising regularly, um, it's probably right around 58 or 60. Uh, I'm basing that on some of the Garmin data where it, uh, it estimates, but it's a decent estimate. Um, so, you know, that puts me for my age and gender, probably top 90%. I'd like to go a little higher with it, but you know, my point being that that's not saying anything about me. The point is I'm not training for anything. I, I got actually quite low and unfit when I couldn't train or my heart would go out of rhythm. Um, and now that I'm back to just exercising without training for any goal, considerably less fit, uh, from a performance standpoint, say on the bike than I was even five, six years ago, uh, I'm still able to be kind of right around the 90th percentile. Yeah. All it took was heart surgery for me to yeah. beat you up a climb. But the, um, I think you brought up two, two good points there with one is the, the kind of Garmin estimate or a lot of these estimates that are out there that you see. Don't let that make you think if you see, oh, Garmin says that I'm at 51, it can completely overshoot it, undershoot it. Don't yeah. let that be a limiter in your training. Like it's just a, a made up number. It's usually pretty okay. Yeah. But it's not, like I said, it's not a limiter that you need to say, oh, well, I, I got this new watch and it said that my VO2 max is 52. That's really bad and be very discouraged with it. Yeah. Just know that, hey, you can you can probably bring that up and Garmin will, will bring that up a lot. Most of it is just based on your heart rate at a given pace for your like age and, and like weight and something else that kind of tracks into it. So yeah. my Garmin, I think, puts me at like 53 or 54. And I think two years ago I hit like a 58. I'd be interested to see again because I think I could get over 60 now because I'm significantly more fit. Yeah. So we'll we'll put that on the uh, the applied practice part of the podcast later this year. I was going to say we should do we should both do a VO2 max test wearing a, a watch Garmin or otherwise or some device that estimates VO2 and let's see where it is that they're, they're surprisingly accurate enough. <laughs> and so I do recommend that people get a VO2 max test. Uh, there's a few ways to do it. The, the most common, like I said, is wearing the mask. You do a ramp test where it gets harder every say three minutes, um, on a bike, on a treadmill, on a rower, uh, there's different ways to do it, but basically it's getting harder and harder and harder until you can't go anymore. What we call volitional failure. You give up. Um, and, or there are things we can see during the test, uh, that show that you've peaked and you can't go any higher. Um, so sometimes the, the tester will say you're done and usually you don't argue against that when they say that. Uh, but so that's the, the most traditional way and probably the most accurate. There are some software programs, algorithms. We use one called inside that uses the same type of, uh, ramp testing done a bit differently, uh, but only takes lactate levels. It, we're not doing gas exchange. So it's a finger stick or earlobe prick and taking a little capillary blood sample and looks at your lactate levels and estimates your VO2 max based on that. And it has been in our experience and in some of their you know, published work, pretty darn accurate, um, not as accurate as gas exchange, but for all practical purposes, fantastic. Uh, and then there's the wearables and, you know, devices that you can, you know, heart rate straps and things that you might wear wrist mounted or wrist worn monitors. And they're, 
pretty good. Um, you'd never use them for anything clinical or to publish data, I don't think. Um, but practically, a lot of times they can be good enough. So in other words, you know, I'm worried whether I'm a, whether my VO2 max is 45 or 55 or 65. I'm not worried whether it's 55 or 60, right? Like if it's 55 today, I might do it tomorrow. It might be 58. Um, there's little things that go into it. So, uh, as I love quoting Alan Lim, who's, who told me multiple times on topics such as this, we're looking for t-shirt sizes, not like the tailored shirt measurements. We just want to know where you fall, like which bucket you fall into. And so for the, for the wearables that can be pretty good, I would default to getting a proper test first and seeing if for you, the, the watch or whatever tends to correlate because for some people it doesn't. Uh, the other thing is with the watch measurements you get, it's going to be very dependent on what kind of training or exercise you do with it. If you haven't done many, um, you know, hard efforts, then chances are it doesn't have the data it needs to give a great number. So there's a lot of inputs and variables there. The point being the, the watches can be, they can be useful, but it's, I think it's worth people getting a test at least once, um, if not every year or two, just to check in and see. Again, it's not your VO2 max number that makes your longevity uh, longer, right? It's not, it's not because there's something magical in the number that you see or the mLs of oxygen that you're consuming. It's the work you do to increase it. So it's just a proxy measurement of your, of your fitness. I mean, it's a very good measure of your fitness, but what we're looking at is how are you doing on a cellular level? And this VO2 number is a really good way to assess that. Um, yeah. So take, take it with, I guess, a small grain of salt, but it, it, but it's a really good way to look at how your fitness might impact your longevity. Yeah. I like to look at like all of the numbers scores, whether it's VO2 max body composition things, they're all lagging indicators of your daily behaviors and we're yeah. trying to make sure that we have the daily behaviors because that's what we can do in an actionable way to make sure that we're doing the most to improve our our health, our lifespan, our performance, whatever it might be. Um, so it's kind of talking about VO2 max there, something we didn't really get into looking at the exercise hours per week is kind of the spread. And we've talked about like a polarized approach and this, that before. But I think it's important to also talk about how like you can't just always go easy. And yeah. you can't just always go hard when you're doing your training. And that's across all of the different domains, whether it's strength training, whether it's aerobic training, or just like you're playing your sport, it's, it's best to have a mix of all of those things. So looking from a, a foundational idea, you want to have some days, very few that are super hard. And then a lot of days that are pretty easy. Yeah. And that's really how you develop your VO2 max. So if, if we were to test somebody who came in and they say, Hey, two or three days a week, I do five minutes of Tabata sets, you know, 30 seconds on 30 seconds off as hard as you can go. And that's all I do. They're not going to have a really high VO two max. They haven't built the aerobic machinery to support pushing that number up, uh, without going into all the details They they will not have a great VO two max test. Um, by the same token, if we have somebody come in, it's like, yeah, I exercise, 20 hours a week. Well, what do you do? I walk. That's great, but you're not going to have a really high VO2 max. And so that's one reason that this metric can be a nice way to get a bird's eye level view of fitness is because you kind of have to have a, a nice, well-rounded exercise program to bump this up. If you don't, the deficit will show here. Yeah. You put those two athletes together and you could have a really good combination for yeah. just kind of a long-term approach. It seems like in the last few weeks, like this idea of like walking is this big hack towards like weight loss and things like that, which it's definitely a great way to be active, but having respect that sometimes you got to go hard. Like there's no yeah. hack around like working really hard to try to, to try to keep that, that anaerobic energy system around. And I think that's something that's always important is like, yes, I need to take it easy some days. Yes. I need to go hard some days. And then we'll see these lagging indicators show kind of how we're doing across those different domains. And that's why we use like the testing that we do inside. It kind of gives us a metabolic footprint so that we can look at an athlete and say, okay, you want to do X event, or you want to make sure that you're doing this. 
well, we need to bring up your sprint power a little bit if we want you to be doing that. Well, we need to bring up your your aerobic power a little bit or your fat max, whatever it might be, to make sure that that athlete's developing kind of from like a holistic as like a complete athlete. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, like you said, walking can be a really great activity. Um, I love a good walk. I mean, I, I've even started putting it on my Strava and, and like wearing my Garmin watch when I do it. Um, not for anyone else to see, but because it keeps me, uh, it keeps me kind of honest that I know I'm going out to do that. And, um, I won't start jogging or, you know, push the pace a little bit as I'm, I tend to do or tend to want to do. There's a lot of value in a walk. Um, I struggle to say it's exercise, it's locomotion, it's activity. Both of those are really good things and necessary. And like I said, I really like a good walk and take time just to do it. Um, however, it's, it's, you know, if you've got it, if, if you're picking up the pace a bit, you can get a nice aerobic, uh, you can dip into that aerobic zone, so to speak. Um, but it's probably not going to meet zone two for most people. Uh, it's kind of a zone one, which is more, we, we typically think of that as a recovery zone, which is great. So if, um, like if you look at my training peaks and I'm not saying anybody should, it's not very impressive, but if I look at my training peaks, I'll see, I don't have many days with nothing. And that's kind of my goal. That's why I, I, log the walks it's because I want to look and see that something was done every day, but I also want to look and see that on some of those days, it was nothing that I really count as exercise. It, it is an activity, it's recovery, it's zone one. Um, I wouldn't count it in my exercise hours per week personally. Um, but I'm not sitting on my butt, which kind of gets us to the next thing that we look at, which is sedentary hours per day. Um, I think a lot of people, and I've been guilty of this frequently in the past, wake up early, get in a workout, you know, they'll do 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half on the bike, running gym, whatever. And then they go sit through the whole day. Um, there's, it, I mean, it stands to reason, but there's also good evidence that that's not really ideal. You, you kind of, you, you get one good stimulus and then you kind of back down the benefit you got from that with a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of sedentary time. Uh, and from a, at least from a health standpoint an exercise standpoint, you're leaving a lot on the table. I would much rather somebody do 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes at lunch and spread out that stimulus, um, or even better do their workout. But then every hour, hour and a half, go for a walk, stand at their desk, do something. Um, and so we try to get a, a feel for how many hours a person is just fully sedentary, seated, working at a computer during a day. And we really want to minimize those. Yeah. I am going to, I'm going to circle back to the walking thing real quick. Just yeah, yeah, dude. I, I think a lot of our audience is going to be like a more like performance minded, very active profile, but I don't want anybody who's listening, who's like looking to get started and maybe has had a very sedentary Absolutely. lifestyle for a long time. And here's, Oh, walking is an exercise, but their heart rate's 140 when they're walking up a hill. It is very dependent on the person. So for some, it can be, I mean, I said the same thing kind of thrown under the bus, but like it can be a wonderful activity, especially if you're out going for long hikes, things like that. Like, it can oh, be, yeah. it can count as exercise and there's yeah. no reason to like look at it as not, but it's, it's kind of a different perspective when you're, you've shifted your set point the way that a lot of our listeners, I, myself and you have to where, yeah. okay, what is the barrier that this now counts towards my training strength score or whatever it might be versus like, okay, I just went for like a, a brisk walk with like, I know you and Alyssa walk in the morning and I think it's great. Yeah, no. And that, that's a, a fantastic distinction. I, I thank you for calling me on that. Um, and that's how you explain it is exactly how I meant it. Uh, for the vast majority of our listeners, um, a walk is a recovery activity. Uh, and that's, that's fine, but you can't count that if your heart rate was 85 the whole time, I don't want you counting that as exercise. That's a great recovery activity and I'm all for it. If the walk that you do puts your heart rate at 120, that's absolutely exercise. And that can happen with really fit people too. Like you said, a long hike, if hills are thrown in, whatever. 
um, it is very much dependent on the person doing it. Uh, for most people across a fitness spectrum, though, um, say you're going to walk to lunch instead of drive, right? We're here downtown in Knoxville. Um, and say there's a restaurant a half mile away in the old city that we're going to go to. Uh, walking that instead of driving it is not an exercise. It's activity. It's locomotion. It is fantastic. Um, but I wouldn't count that for almost anyone unless you're way out of shape as exercise. And so there's a distinction there and it's a really important one. Um, walking is kind of encompasses a large grade of activities and for, yeah, I was, I was overly simplistic. So thank you for saying that. No worries. I just wanted to kind of to clarify that, but it's a great way to, to segue into the sedentary hours per day mm-hmm. and kind of, I mean, I always remember the old, Oh, park, you know, park far away from the store when you're going shopping or take the stairs if you see them. And it's very interesting in, in our public health class, we talked a lot about you walk up in an architecture design where all you see is elevators. And that's mm-hmm. pretty common in a lot of buildings. You don't see the stairs, but if you go to a place and a lot of schools do this in academic settings, where if there's you know, maybe one or two floors where the different buildings are, the stairs are very obvious. Like it's a nice, it's part of the architecture and it prompts you, okay, I'm going to take those stairs instead of taking the escalator and those little decisions throughout the day. So like I'll park across the bridge to make it to where it's like a half mile walk to get to the office. I love walking the bridge in the morning. This morning was delightful. There's like a fall crisp to the air. It's a, it's a great way to add in some activity throughout the day because I'm the same way, you know, I got an hour strength workout, but then I'm going to be sedentary for four hours, then walk back home and then go get a bike ride. But it's like, there's not a lot of movement throughout the day. So walking to lunch, like standing at your desk, these little things can really add up to help from like a big picture of, of health. And it's important to kind of see where you can work those into your day. Yeah. So, uh, there are devices that will measure that if you like an aura ring, uh, you know, certain devices that you wear will tell you how many sedentary hours you had in the day. And I think that's a nice way to look at it. Um, I think most people have kind of an idea though. So we even sometimes just gather this via questionnaire just to make you think about it. And I think most people can think through a typical day and say, all right, I get to work. I sit for probably three hours, maybe walk, get a coffee, come back, sit for another hour or so. Too frequently people have lunch at their desk, um, which did you know that's illegal in France? I did. I did not. Yeah, it's actually doesn't mean people don't do it, but it's actually illegal to have your lunch at your desk in France. Um, yeah, side note, but um, you can find yourself seated for a long period of time and you think through it and you're like, oh, well, probably, you know, four or five hours a day. I'm not moving around. And for us, you lose all points at six hours. If you've spent six hours just seated, um, you got no points in this category. So we really want to limit this to kind of two hours or less. Uh, And that takes some creativity. I wouldn't hit, I don't hit that metric. Right. But again, the point of this is to draw your attention to where you need to kind of spend a little time and effort. And so, you know, I've got, we've both got standing desks. I've got a little wobble board. um, And, you know, even just looking through this now, it reminds me, Oh yeah, I need to do that because then I could stand at the desk, kind of get some movement, still be doing what I need to do, um, but not accumulating sedentary hours. Yeah, I love I love having people do the the walking phone call when they have the opportunity and they know they can do it. Like if you're on like a a big conference call that maybe you just need to listen to going for a walk on those, I think is a great way to kind of sneak some activity, get outside, especially for people who are stuck indoors more. We're, we're pretty lucky. Like the, the workday is not as long and we got windows, but yeah, I think getting outside and, and kind of going for that stroll is really key. Yeah. Agreed. Um, so another one we look at is days off per week. And I think this is pretty straightforward. Uh, we don't have to dwell on it too long and we'll talk, we'll talk more about recovery in general too. Uh, but basically if you're not taking any days off per week in terms of your exercise and training program, um, then you're not getting any points on this one. Uh, I like to see people take at least a day or two off depending on their overall training load. So if you flip that, the ideal is to be exercising probably five or six days a week. Uh, it's, it's consistency, but it's not overdoing it. It's allowing time to recover, uh, to my point earlier, an active recovery day is fine. So, you know, for me, like you said, Alyssa and I, I when we get the chance, love to go, you know, we take our take our kid kindergartner to school um, and then just 
we're lucky to be able to walk him there and then just, you know, continue for another 30 minutes on a walk. Um, and that's a great thing to do on a, on a recovery day, uh, but I can still count that as a day off. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I want to see days off too many people try to pack as much as they can into seven days. And that's a recipe for failure if it's week after week. Yeah. And you have to be careful with, with what counts is active recovery. Yeah. Like, Oh, I'm going to go on the coffee bike ride. Yeah. Yet, you know, maybe there's a, an effort because you're riding with other people or oh, I'm going to go for a light run. And then it ends up being kind of a zone three junk mile day or, you know, you're like, Oh, I'm just going to like kind of piddle around the pool. And then you end up doing like three by 500 just yeah. kind of casually. Yeah. It's, it's a true active recovery and it's just light movement. It's nothing intense. And I think it's really important to respect that when you're getting these, you know, six days stacked in a row with like a, a pretty intense training program. Yeah. And I would say the bigger problem that like the, the typical patient of ours or even a person that I know who falls into this category of getting a zero, like, of losing points on this is not your pro athlete. And it's not your really high performing athlete. Usually it's oftentimes someone who wants to perform better and is time crunched and thinks they just have to take advantage of every single day. And not only is that unhealthy in the long run, your body needs that recovery time. Um, it's also detrimental to performance. And so a lot of times, if you take that person who's trying to cram something in every day, if not two a days, and you say, hey, I want you to do one day where you do nothing. I mean, for those folks, oftentimes it's even, don't even do active recovery. Because like you said, there's a creep. There's like, well, it's a recovery day, so I'll go hop in the pool and do 45 minutes to an hour. You know, that's a workout. That that counts. So if you just tell them, do nothing today. You know, again, walk to lunch, do that kind of stuff. Um, they get faster. Time comes off their calendar, their training calendar. Uh, their training volume may drop slightly, uh, but they get faster. And so whether you're looking at this as uh, kind of a step toward health or performance, you know, a part of your exercise or your training program, it is a really crucial one that I think too many people miss. And I've been guilty of it for sure for decades probably. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's important to kind of respect that. And one thing that this, this segues into kind of our next score is a lot of times people take their off day and they're like, Oh, well I'll do, I'll do some strength training on my, on my Monday off yeah. day. And we'll just toss that in there. And that could not be more off. I a hundred percent agree. Um, I mean, strength training. So the, the next two things that we look at are whether your program includes regular strength training, um, and then whether it includes regular endurance training. So point being that you really need both to have a well-rounded uh, exercise or training program. And like you said, some people will, will take that day off and go to the gym and spend 45 minutes or an hour throwing around weight, lifting heavy things and call it an off day because their heart rate wasn't really high for a long period of time. And that's not, it's not fair and it's not correct. Um, the body was under a significant load and requires recovery. You know, if, if you go do that, uh, chances are you're going to be slightly sore the next day, you know, regardless of your fitness. If, if you're not used to doing it, you're going to be really sore for three or four days. But even someone who's fit, if you're progressing your program, you're going to have a little bit of soreness. That's an indication that you worked. You didn't recover. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that needs to stand on its own as a workout, not a, not a recovery day. Yeah. Respecting the stimulus and the stress that that is, because that's what all of all of the things that we're talking about are productive stresses is you stress, correct? Like we're, yeah. we're looking for a stress on the body that's going to create an adaptation that we want. And we also have to give it time to adapt. So that's why we're resting. However, getting in the stress of strength training is essential from a longevity standpoint, a performance standpoint, like just across the board. It's going to be incredibly helpful and it's missed a lot of times where it slips through the cracks because people try to sneak it in on a rest day or they think, oh, I'll just do like, you know, I'll do my, my pre, my post-workout strength training and then that falls off because they're time crunched. And I think it's really important to take that overall volume. And if you're going to say, okay, I'm getting eight to 10 hours per week, don't let yourself think I have to get eight to 10 hours on the bike because I'm a cyclist. Yeah. Get 
six hours on the bike and two hours of strength training and you're going to be stronger. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think the other place that recovery days can be kind of misallocated, you, you have to be careful with are travel days, um, busy days at work, other days on your calendar where you may not be able to exercise, but it's going to be a really stressful day. Sometimes that works really well. I mean, sometimes a travel day can be a great day off. Sometimes a travel day is hell. I mean, you're up at four to catch a 6 a.m. flight, meetings all day. Maybe you're delayed. You've got a late dinner for for work stuff. Like There was nothing recovery about that day. And so I think in the same way that you don't want to call a strength training day a recovery day, you have to be really careful about a day that is too busy to exercise and calling that a recovery day too. So just a, just a caveat. No, absolutely. And that's something that's, that's very lost in, in trackers and things like that. And I have, I have a client that I'll work with or a client slash friend that has that kind of typical Monday to Thursday training schedule. And for a while he was packing a bike. He'd assemble the bike Monday night, train Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe a Thursday morning, pack the bike back up, fly back home, and then, you know, get eight, 10 hours on the weekend. And there is just no space for recovery in that schedule. Yeah, for sure. Sounds like he needs to buy a second bike. No, he's got, he's got, <laughs> we did not say that he's got four or five. All right. So if you're listening, good. I didn't say that. Um, and then, so we mentioned the inclusion of regular strength training. We want to see that. And it's the, the regularity is important, not just that you do it every now and then, but that it's a, a part of your program. Um, and by the same token, inclusion of regular endurance training. So we work with some athletes too, who are primarily, uh, strength athletes, explosive athletes, um, and they tick the box for strength training, no problem. They may even do enough strength training in a week to meet the exercise hours per week, uh, you know, probably do, but then they don't do a lot of endurance training. So we want to see that they're getting that endurance, that aerobic stimulus as well. Again, going back to the idea that if say we want to push the VO two max as a, as a, a good marker of overall fitness, not the perfect marker, but a good one and well-studied good data. If someone's just doing strength training really well, but just doing that, their VO two max, their aerobic fitness isn't going to be great. And so it really takes working both sides of this coin to have well-rounded fitness for both performance and health. Yeah. And just to chat, just a touch more on strength training before it's not, yeah, there's a lot of variety within that training that I think is also missed Yeah, that from it's not necessarily scored kind of in our structure, but if you're looking at a, at a proper strength training program, having a variety of rep ranges where you're lifting some heavy weights, you're doing five reps and below in a weight that you feel five reps is probably about what you could do with it. And then also sometimes where you're doing the 10 to 15, whatever your goal is and moving through all of those different ranges different movements, different patterns. So doing rotational work, doing horizontal, whatever it might be, that's really important to apply to your other sports. And I think a lot of times, especially in the endurance world, we think, oh, I'm just going to go do sets of 15 because I'm trying to work on my muscular endurance. When in reality, you're getting plenty of muscular endurance stimulus from your, your aerobic training. And what we really need to be doing is eight and below and yeah. lifting heavy, getting that stimulus from a hormonal standpoint, from a bone density standpoint and all of these different things. So I think looking at the inclusion of that, it's really important to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to move through different rep ranges. I'm going to move through different movements and I'm going to really train and, and practice and get after it in the gym is really important. Looking at kind of like the, the whole picture. Yeah, I agree entirely. It's, it's not broken down that way in our, our scoring system because it's, it's almost impossible to score. That's part of the conversation we have with the patients. Um, and on the flip side of it, if somebody is doing nothing and they're kind of scared of the gym or don't like the gym or whatever, think they'll get injured, um, starting out with, you know, pushups and pull-ups and, and air squats, like that's valuable. So we don't, there is a lot of layer to this. Um, and I think that's important in the same way that somebody who's not doing endurance training there's a lot of layers there, but if we just get them doing it regularly, that's the first big hurdle. Uh, this, this rubric that we have created here for scoring doesn't really get into that. 
Um, and it is overly simplistic in a lot of ways, uh, as I kind of started off saying, but it directs the conversation, directs attention. So if, if you've gone through our, you know, exercise assessment and you can, you can get 30 points and you've gotten 22, then, you know, not really where you want to be and let's see where you lost points and start digging in there. And then we can have those conversations. If you go through it and you've got 28 out of 30, chances are you're time is probably not best spent trying to harvest those last two points. Um, it might be depending on your goals and if everything else is great, but in my experience, someone who has, you know, a near perfect score in one area, by the time we get to their sleep, it's probably, well, here's where we need to spend, spend time for you. Not finding those two extra points in exercise, but finding the 12 you're missing in sleep. Um, so again, that, that's kind of the, the, the goal of this tool, but the foundational aspect remains that um, we want to see exercise regularity and exercise, you know, hours per week. Uh, we want people to have higher VO2 maxes, uh, one that suits them, their goals and, and reasoning. Uh, but that's a very objective thing we can look at. We want to see they're limiting their sedentary hours per day, uh, that they're taking some time off per week, which for a lot of people is not a problem. Uh, but for those that are really pushing, it can be, it can be an issue that they have to keep an eye on. Um, and then we want to see the inclusion of strength training and endurance training. And if you are doing all of those, then from a foundational standpoint, I think you're really on the right track and you can start to tweak it and, and get the, the benefits of, of kind of honing these things toward your goal, but you've at least laid a strong foundation that you can build from. Yeah. And that's our series, the foundation. So that's right. It, it pairs well with looking with that one thing I will add that's kind of outside the scoring that has been helpful with me and like helpful with like kind of working with a, a different client base is building that foundation with an idea that it's going to help me try like new things and learn new skills, hmm. whether that's, you know, I'm going to try mountain biking. I'm going to learn how to ski. I want to go and try and play pickleball. I think that's something that we forget when we're looking at like, oh, I've, I do all this training. I do all this exercise. You're doing that to empower yourself to go out and have fun in these activities. Yeah. So knowing that you're doing this training, you're, you're fit, you have all of this set there, that gives you the ability to like say yes and go and do those things. You can say, hey, like I got some buddies that want to go do a five-day backpacking trip. I've never gone backpacking, but I'm pretty fit. I can probably go and do that. Like I, I have gone backpacking just as a caveat, but like I think that's something that really helps looking at this is, is the mindset and knowing why you're doing it all. It's like, yes, health, performance, longevity, like improving lifespan, but also knowing that doing these things empowers you to go out and live your life to the fullest and kind of pursue those activities, those challenges, whatever it may be, I think really helps keep you engaged in that week to week process when maybe you aren't as motivated to do something, but you know, Hey, I'm still going to do like a 20 minute body weight routine while I'm traveling. Cause it's just going to kind of keep the body moving. And I know that that's, that's who I am. Like, that's how I, that's how I am. It's like, a, that's my identity. Yeah. It's like, I'm somebody who stays active, cares about these things and wants to make sure that I'm kind of ready to, to take on whatever those challenges might be. Yeah. I think that's a really good point that having that, that variation and the, the enjoyment in it is, I mean, it's, it should be an underlying ultimate goal for most people. Again, if you're making a paycheck doing something, which you know does apply to a, a number of our patients, then it's not that it shouldn't be enjoyable, but you have certain things you just have to do. Um, and that's kind of nice. I mean, that gets to be your job. Like that's, that's not such a, a downer. Uh, but for the rest of us, if you're not enjoying it, there's so many things that you can do to, to fill that role that, it's just kind of sad if somebody, I, I think if somebody finds themselves uh, rotely exercising and, and training for something that doesn't bring them joy, um, switch modalities, play with something else. Um, and even if, if you love what you're doing, switch modalities and play with something else for part of the time, uh, it will make you a better athlete as well. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, and one of the things that we didn't talk about that I think is worth kind of throwing in here is when we look at something like inclusion of strength training, the other goal there is it's not just performance. It's not just like this nebulous idea of health, um, but you can perform better at your sport and 
you increase your resilience, lower the likelihood of, of injury for most people. Um, it, you know, and, and injury is something that takes uh, enjoyment away from exercise. Obviously, it takes away consistency. Um, so there's reason that all these are in there. Uh, it, it's enjoyment, it's performance, um, but it's also just to make sure that you can continue to do these things. It's that idea of health span. Uh, it's kind of a overused and ill-defined term, but I think most people can kind of wrap their head around it. This idea that you want to feel good day to day. And if you, if you do these things consistently, but in a varied way, uh, it's fun. You feel good for doing it. The body doesn't hurt. Um, you know, it's, you can end up in a, a really good spot. And then if you push the VO2 max and you increase longevity, then, uh, you know, you get to feel good for a long time. And that's, it's very simplistic, but that's kind of what most people are probably going for. Yeah, absolutely. I know it's what I'm going for. Yeah. Well, my coffee did not last a long time. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll cut it here. This one went a little bit long, but we appreciate you all listening. We'll, uh, we'll go make another coffee before this next call for sure. And we will, uh, we're going to have a discount code for perk. Um, I don't know what it is yet, but we'll put it in the show notes and we will uh, state it verbally on the next podcast. So look out for those. Yeah. Stay caffeinated and thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening to the podium. To hear more, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram where I am at Dr. Kevin Sprouse. That's Dr. Kevin Sprouse. The podcast posts at the underscore podium underscore podcast. You can also find and follow me on Strava. The content of this podcast is meant for general informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. All listeners should speak with their doctor or medical practitioner before implementing any change in their healthcare regimen. If you're currently a patient at Podium, then you have an established doctor-patient relationship with me, and I'm happy to discuss this with you. If you're not currently a patient at Podium, nothing in this recording establishes a doctor-patient relationship between us, nor does it constitute the practice of medicine nor the dissemination of medical advice. Should you implement any information contained herein without consulting your own physician, you do so at your own risk. The Podium Podcast is part of the Palm Tree Podco Network of Podcasts. The show is produced and edited by Anthony Palmer. The content for this show is provided by the team at The Podium.